Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello, I'm Hugh Linehan and you're very welcome to this latest instalment of Inside Story, a podcast series from the Irish Times in which we talk to our journalists about the background to stories which they've been working on for the print edition or on irishtimes.com. We're trying to offer a bit more insight into those stories and what the process of telling them involved. This week, on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration as the 45th President of the United States, I talked to our foreign affairs correspondent, Ruan McCormick. Ruan spent several weeks in the US during the election campaign last autumn, but his brief also covers international relations in general and Ireland's foreign policy interactions in particular. He's been writing this weekend about what people are expecting from the new administration. Ruan, if the last 12 months have taught us anything, it's that prediction is, uh, is, is dangerous at the best of times. But presumably people around the world and governments around the world are trying to get a handle on what's going to happen when the Trump administration starts next week. I think that's true. I think um, you know, both America's friends and enemies will spend the next few weeks and months you know, simply trying to figure out what sort of leader Trump is going to be. I mean, you know, you, you've got a situation where for the last eight years, the US has been run by this coolly methodical, analytical, in a sense, quite predictable president in the sense that we we know, certainly have known since the early years of his presidency, how he tends to approach problems and the values he brings to his decision making. Now you've got in the White House uh, a showman who appears to be completely untethered by conviction, by policy know-how, by a lot of the conventions of the US presidency, who has said things that if he acts on would completely tear up what we consider to be the world order, certainly over the last few decades. You know, so if you think of things he said, for example, about the future of NATO, he said only last week in an interview with um, German, a German and British newspaper that NATO was obsolete. I mean, that strikes terror into countries in West, in Eastern and Central Europe. He has talked, he talked during the campaign about uh, about perhaps not automatically supporting South Korea if it's attacked by the North, another you know pillar of US foreign policy for the past half century. Um, he seems to be opposed to closer European integration. He, seen, he sees Brexit uh, as a triumph. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. He, he has taken uh, a position on the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, conflict, which, you know, U.S. policy has always been supportive of Israel, but he talks about moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which the Palestinians would regard as, you know, killing off what's left of the peace process, jeopardizing the two-state solution. You know, so the list goes on and on. And so the question, I think the fear among America's friends is that he means all of this, but they're not quite sure um, because he's also shown a willingness and a readiness to reverse his positions. Um, he doesn't. Well, he's contradicted. He said all the things you've said, but he, but within days he's contradicted several of those positions. That's well. right. And when interviewers 
press him on a lot of issues, he's very quick to reassure America's allies and say, you know, I may see Brexit in a positive light, but Germany's a very important ally and, you know, he's made very positive uh, noises towards Ireland as well, notwithstanding the fact that he sees Brexit potentially one of the greatest shocks to the Irish economy in 50 years uh, as, a, as a very good thing. So I think in the initial stages, you'll see that uh, America's friends, America's allies will simply be trying to work out how how Trump genuinely sees these big questions. And that'll only emerge, you know, as he gives big set piece speeches, as uh, foreign officials start to get to know his own officials. It's also very important. Um, they'll be trying to figure out how power is distributed within the new administration. Um, and the, li the lines of authority within the new White House aren't clear at all. It's often said that you need a very strong chief of staff who has the office adjacent to the Oval Office, who filters what the president sees, what the president hears, uh, is the gatekeeper. Um, so he regulates what paper gets into the Oval Office, what voices make their way into the Oval Office. That's Reince Priebus, the uh, former head of the Republican Party, um, the Republican National Committee. Um, but you also have other centres of power. Well, you have Jared Kushner, who by, by all accounts is going to be, has... has uh, the new president's ear more than anybody else. Very much so. Uh, his son-in-law, who, you know, as you say, would be an extremely powerful figure who seems already to have a, a, a very significant say over foreign defence policy and had a big input into who was appointed in those areas. You also have Steve Bannon, whose title, I think, is chief strategist, but who uh, Trump trusts who uh, Trump leaned on very much during the campaign and who uh, clearly ha you know, has the president's ear. Um, so it'll be important to see, I think, in the first couple of weeks and months, who is making the decisions, who and, is, and, who is and, the president. And among the many, many questions which, which that raises is that, um, I, I, I think I'm right in saying including Rens Priebus, but certainly Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner and Donald Trump himself, none of those people has ever served in a governmental position before. So there is a question of... Uh, even if they have a you know a clear agenda, or if that agenda emerges, how well equipped they are to pull the necessary levers of power to achieve that agenda. That's true. Um, there are some who will clearly have a better understanding of the parliamentary system in which they're operating, the, in the general political environment. People like Reince Priebus are very much Washington insiders. They know how the system works, and that'll be that'll work clearly to Trump's advantage. Um, but uh, quite how they navigate that system won't be at all clear. You know um, how far they will be willing to go to compromise. You know, okay, the Republicans are very, in a very strong position. They control the House and the Senate. And the White House. But, you know, there's a long history of uh, awkward, difficult relationships between the White House and, and, and Capitol Hill, even when both are controlled by the same party. Um, you know, American there's a, elections are always just on the horizon in American politics, and we know that there are going to be midterm elections in, in two years. Now, because of ger gerrymandering, there won't be huge changes in the House, but a lot of, or a certain number at least of you know, Senate seats are in competitive states. Um, so if you see that uh, you know, Trump is going in now with 40-44% popularity ratings, if that begins to slide, if within two years he's closer to 30, say, and if a lot of uh, or a certain number of Republican senators feel that their, their seats are in jeopardy because of the connection to Trump, then you'll see the dynamic uh, shift very significantly. Um, and the fact is, because of the way the American system is designed, even though he has a mandate, even though he controls the Senate, the House and the and the White House, you know, Trump can only 
achieve, uh, or at least Trump's achievements will be uh, determined largely by the extent to which he can persuade the capital to go with him. And from the point of view of us in Ireland or, or indeed you know, around the world looking at this new US president, when I look back at the history of, of, of other recent presidents, they do tend to focus at the outset more on the domestic agenda and, and working with con- Congress. And as you say, you know, he has Republican majorities in, 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 in both houses there. Um, but then as, they, as their terms wear on, perhaps international you know, affairs, you know, whether they want to or not, tend to impinge more upon the, the president's time and the president's role. And I suppose the president also, in, in, in terms of the way executive power operates in the United States, has a little more freedom to do things, which personally would cause me worries when I look at Donald Trump. That's true. George W. Bush is a good example. George W. Bush came to power saying that he wanted America to have a lower profile role in the world, that he didn't see America's role as being that of the the world's policeman. And of course, as time went on, largely because of 9-11, but also for other reasons, um, he, he became embroiled in world affairs to an extent that nobody would have imagined at the beginning. Um, Trump similarly comes to power saying that he wants to withdraw from some of the US's global commitments, that he he doesn't want to get involved in another war, that he doesn't want to get embroiled in foreign uh, conflicts. Um, But the the world has a way of drawing America in um, because the unavoidable fact is that America is the most powerful country in the world, that a lot of countries in the world, a lot of American allies look to the US for protection, be it military or economic or whatever else. Um, And and it's it's inconceivable that, that, that the same thing won't happen. Um, it's true that early on the focus will be domestic um, and it'll be on certain specific issues. You know, we know that Congress can only deal with one big issue at a time, so we're probably going to spend the next few months talking about things like um, Trump's plans to repeal Obamacare, maybe tax reform, uh, immigration reform, or at least fixing the border, as he says. Um, but I think as time goes on, you know, there will be foreign conflicts. Events happen, you know, events you know happen. you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you, you know, that's if right. you're a president of the United States, you you know, that's going to affect you. And there are some places where we know a lot will happen over the next couple of months and the next year, you know, things aren't going to, uh, the conflict isn't going to stop in Syria, for example, and that poses some really complex questions for the Trump administration as regards how it deals with Russia. I mean, this is the big question hanging over everything, how Trump will deal with uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia, but specifically what impact will that have on the conflict in Syria. Trump was pretty vague during the campaign on what his, what his thoughts were on the Syrian conflict. He said he wanted to um, you know, bomb the hell out of ISIS and give more support to the Kurds. America's already doing both of those things. Um, so it's not clear how he intends to shift policy there. What will his clear rhetorical shift, at least on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, mean in practical terms? Um, you know, we still have American troops in, in Afghanistan. What's his position going to be towards the European Union? You know, how is his relationship with traditional allies like the UK, Japan, uh, other states going to work out? These are all questions we just there, can't there, answer. There, obviously, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of un, un, unknowns, unknowns that... I recall it's uh, eight years ago now that the newly appointed Secretary of State won Hillary Clinton uh, suggested that it was time for for a reset with Russia. And Obama, of course, entered the White House uh, as a direct reaction against the interventionist foreign foreign policy of of his predecessor. So in some ways, you know, there's a kind of mirroring going on there. 
That's right. I remember at one press conference between Hillary Clinton and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian uh, foreign minister, they actually had a you know a, a, a reset button prop which they uh, theatrically pressed together at the beginning of, uh, didn't of work. the Obama. It didn't quite work as out as planned, um, and you know relations were you know at a nadir by the end of the the eight years. But it's true that Obama came to power promising to reset relations with Russia. Uh, one of Obama's big things was that you know there was a certain amount of conventional things in the Washington in Washington foreign policy circles in that sort of think tank world in Washington you know and and according to these conventions we were to have an antagonistic relation the US was to have an antagonistic relationship with Russia the US was not to talk to the Iranians um, the uh, embargo on the long-standing policy towards Cuba was untouchable and he questioned a lot of these things and in the latter two examples, in the case of Iran and Cuba, he achieved some of the biggest successes of his foreign policy. Um, but on Russia, even though he did start out with this conciliatory approach towards um, Moscow, it clearly didn't work out. And, and by the end, the Russians had imposed sanctions. Uh, Russia, sorry, the, the Americans had imposed sanctions on Russia. The Russians were feeling emboldened. They'd gotten away with the uh, the annexation of Crimea. Um, they, they were in the ascendant in, in Syria. The intervention of the Russians on the side of Bashar al-Assad had clearly swung the momentum in his favour and put Russia, meant that not only was Russia in a position by the end of last year to retain its its military bases on the Mediterranean, but was in a really strong position as a, as a power in the region. Um, so, so in many ways, you know, Time magazine might have been better suited putting Vladimir Putin as his man of the year on the cover rather than Donald Trump. I think that's unquestionably true. I think, uh, you know, there was no world leader who emerged from uh, 2016 in a better position uh, than Vladimir Putin, uh, if we judge it by the extent to which one's goals are achieved. Um, so not only did he have this success in, in Syria, um, not only... Uh, you know, is he domestically untouchable because of the repressive regime he has put in place, but also other factors? Um, and he, you know, more than anything, he has a president coming to power in the U.S. who praised him more than any other foreign leader. Um, you know, Donald Trump has praised, has has really strongly criticised journalists, opponents, civil rights leaders, you know, heroes in the US, but he's never criticised Vladimir Putin. Um, so, again, a lot of this is unknowable. We don't quite know how the relationship is going to pan out, but certainly judged on the pronouncements of Donald Trump, uh, the pronouncements of people like Mike Flynn, his national security advisor, the fact that quite a few people in his new administration are very much pro-Russian and pro-having a better relationship including with Russia. Including his Secretary of State. Including his Secretary of State, who's a long relationship with Russia through his business dealings. Um, certainly, if we judge it on the basis of what's been said by all of these people, uh, Vladimir Putin must be absolutely delighted by what's happening in the US at the moment. I mean, the other key geopolitical relationship is with China, of course, and Trump talked a lot about China from a from a trade point of view over the over the course of the campaign and sort of immediately broke protocols using using Twitter and his telephone uh, in the in the, in the first days of his of of the interregnum uh, before he's appointed president is it possible that that Asia might be where, where where the greatest tensions might arise even though a lot of the focus has been upon and as you say the the the, the issues around NATO and the European Union and Russia it may well be. I mean, clearly, the relationship between Washington and Beijing is 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 hugely important. And during the campaign, Donald Trump took a pretty hostile approach to China. 
he criticised Beijing's currency policies, um, Beijing's expansionist inclinations in the South China Sea. Um, he, uh, you know, generally his posture was antagonistic or hostile towards the Chinese. Um, and, and, you know, above all, he has, you know, within a week of uh, winning the election, he took a call from uh, the, chi- the leader of Taiwan, uh, you know, raising the concern in China, I suppose, that he's going to ditch uh, the one China policy, which again has been a pillar of American foreign policy and the relationship between America and China for more than half a century. I have to admit, I, w- I was never fully aware of the, the kind of the slightly weird theology of the way in which Taiwan and the United States, you know, relate to each other. So that as I, I actually have some sympathy for the Trump administration pointing out that they sell billions of dollars uh, uh, of of arms to Taiwan, but they're not allowed to speak to the leader on the phone. That's right, and they do a lot of business. In mm. general, Americans do a lot of business with Taiwanese too, and that's true of a lot of countries in the West. Um, but but I think the way in which it was done um, clearly raised concerns in Beijing, and what you have now is a situation where an American president is coming to power at a time when the mutual distrust is at a really high level and I you know generally speaking that's not a good thing for the world um, but again I come back I, I sound like a broken record but I come back to the point that while Donald Trump has said all of these things he hasn't done anything yet you know he hasn't taken a, an executive decision he hasn't instructed Congress to do anything yet um, he hasn't had any power yet and so I think uh, what we're waiting for now over the next days weeks and months is not to hear from Donald Trump, but to see what he does. Accepting that and knowing that, that that we can't know exactly what's going to happen, there must be some fear. I mean, you're in the business of covering, you know, diplomatic relations between countries and talking to people who who move in the world in the world of diplomacy. There must be some fear about that in the most powerful job in the world. There's somebody who quite clearly has no time for what are normally accepted as being the parameters of diplomatic language in which in which political leaders talk to each other. Because that in itself surely must be destabilizing, pure that language alone. It is. It's a world that's defined by its protocol, its conventions. You know, things are done very similarly uh, to how they were done 50 years ago. You know, people speak the same language and, and, and they're, they're the same sort of symbols and signals that are used in diplomacy all the time that don't, don't change much over time. Um, this is a really abrupt departure from all of that. Um, and while Donald Trump may have surrounded himself with people who will be better at observing diplomatic niceties, he, he clearly has no time for this. Um, and so, you know, we have apparently U.S. policy being set by uh, tweets at, uh, sent in the middle of the night that abruptly depart from U.S. policy set over many years. And I think that is a shock. I think um, it's a shock to America's allies who have you know, relied on the U.S. for a very long time and have relied on the consistency of U.S. policy. Um, and it's not just a sense that politically the U.S. will have your back in the case of a country like South Korea. It's the knowledge that if you're attacked by the North, that America has tens of thousands of troops on your soil who will leap to your defence as soon as uh, there is an invasion or an attempted invasion. So the the stakes are really, really high here. Um, But I think, you know, I I think the, the, the priority for foreign states, for foreign embassies in the US, will be building relationships with the new administration, figuring out who has uh, the power within that administration, who has uh, the, the loudest voice, who has Trump's ear, and then beginning to cultivate relationships. I think what will encourage them, in many cases, those who are concerned, is the speed with which he has shown himself willing to reverse position and contradict himself. 
you know, so the fear is that he means everything he says, but the hope is that he's willing to change his mind. And speaking of that then, from an Irish perspective and for the Irish uh, diplomatic mission in the United States and the Irish government, what will be at the top of their list of concerns? I think um, they're hopeful at least that they have an in with the new administration by virtue of the fact that there's a strong Irish flavour to it. Um, Does that make a difference? I think it does in establishing relationships. I think Paul Ryan's a good example. Um, Paul Ryan, before he ran for vice president with Mitt Romney, uh, never really spoke much about his Irish heritage. He seems not to have been all that aware or conscious of it. Somebody put together his family tree um, around that time when he was uh, Mitt Romney's running mate, and it was given to him. And after that, he started to talk about it much more. The U.S. embassy, the Irish embassy in Washington, built a strong relationship with him. Out of all that, he brought his family to Gregnamana and visited the, uh, the ancestral farm and spoke to his distant cousins. And I think this does have an effect. I mean, I wouldn't overstate it, but what it means is it gives you an in. It gives you uh, a, the way. It, it's it's a conversation starter. It allows the embassy in Washington to to develop a relationship and clearly Paul Ryan's a very powerful uh, person in, in the you know the political architecture of, of, of Washington DC you also have people like Kellyanne Conway who let, ran the campaign in its latter stages is going to be an important voice in the White House Steve Bannon has Irish heritage um, and do we know if, Mike if, that, if that matters to Steve Bannon for example at all or uh, we don't. Um, I couldn't tell you where his grandparents are from or what the connection, are, uh, connection I'm is. Sure the I'm, sure, being done I'm sure there are, there's, there's somebody in the embassy in Washington who's working on all of that, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. I don't know what, what influence this has. Um, I suspect relatively little, but at least it means that you've got a group of people who at least have a benign view of you. Um, Donald Trump uh, doesn't have doesn't know much about the world. He, he, you know, he, he's not a man. He has travelled through his business, but he doesn't have a particularly sophisticated knowledge of world affairs. At least, this was the view put to me by uh, officials, Irish officials in the last few days, at least he has some acquaintance with Ireland. He's done business here. He, he, he sees it as an amenable business environment. He, he also, remember, it comes from, uh, you know, he spent his career in the construction industry in Manhattan, which is a very Irish-American uh, sector. Um, so he knows a lot of people from Irish America too. So at least that's, it's a positive starting point from their point of view. But that said, you know, there are issues um, where Trump is not exactly on message as regards Irish positions. So on immigration reform, he clearly has no appetite for any serious move towards immigration reform, certainly in the not, not in the early stages of his presidency. He has said that he will expel foreign criminals and then that his priority will be fixing the border or building this wall he speaks about. Um, and only then, only after that, will he even uh, entertain discussion of potential Im- immigration But that's largely reform. a maintenance of the status quo, isn't it? Because there aren't, um, there aren't lots of Irish immigrants coming over the Rio Grande. Uh, that's true, that's true. And it's also true that Barack Obama um, expelled about 4 million uh, undocumented immigrants and that had, according to Irish officials, that had virtually no effect on Irish undocumented immigrants in the US. Um, The other issue is tax reform. Uh, I said that Congress isn't good at dealing with more than one big thing at a time, but one of the big things that Trump has indicated he will deal with or wants Congress to deal with is tax reform. So he wants, you know, the fact that there's uh, perhaps over $2 trillion um, in 
profits generated by US multinationals sitting overseas. He wants to bring some of that back and he wants to make, maybe impose a tax on these multinationals. That potentially could have very serious implications for Ireland, certainly if it jeopardises uh, you know, the, the presence of pharmaceutical companies, tech companies in Ireland. Um, now, Irish officials will say a lot of that money, even though it's maybe generated by multinationals based in Ireland, it's not sitting here. It's not collected by the Irish uh, Irish revenue services. It's in some weird non-national cloud above all our heads. Yeah, who yeah. knows where it is, yeah. but it's not here. Um, that said, even though that might be true, if you reach a point where American multinationals, when deciding where to open a new plant, think, well, just it's too much you know, it's more hassle than it's worth to set up in Cork. Uh, and maybe we will think of bringing our operations back to the US in some form. That's when it could become a serious problem for Ireland. So 2016 was a year of shocks and 2017 is going to be the year of the results of those shocks, I suppose. It certainly looks that way, yeah. Um, you know, uh, in any other year, Brexit would be by far the biggest issue facing Europe, Ireland, the rest of the world, um, given the political and economic fallout it'll have. But I think clearly, uh, you know, Trump is going to be the story of 2017, figuring out what Trump is going to do and how his administration is going to act. We say it's going to be a year of figuring out how we're going to deal with the fallout from 2016, but who's to say what uh, what other major stories uh, lie ahead in the year. Watch this space. Ruan, thanks for joining us. That's it for this edition of Inside Story. Just to mention that on our sister podcast, Worldview, you can hear Simon Carswell talking about the four years he has spent in Washington, D.C., covering American politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember, you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or find me on Twitter. Remember also, you can find all our shows on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And if you're a subscriber, we do always appreciate it if you can take a minute to rate or to review the show as it helps to get us out to a wider audience. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 